the alienation is almost it ends up being intrinsic it's it's like a it's within you you have to change your personality to it's match the to, production of your commodity like it's harder to articulate the form of oppression because the lines are blurred yeah yeah exactly and it's that's the task of the left now was to make something like that clear like a new communist manifesto that speaks to that relationship Hello, welcome to episode nine of Peak Performance with Paige. I'm uh, very. It's been. We've had a brief hiatus of a couple of weeks. I'm very um, excited to have on a guest. Very, uh, we had some trouble booking this. He's a very busy man, very elusive man, man of mystery. Uh, Franklin, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Good to be here. <laughs> Good to have you on, mate. Um, I enjoy your tweets. Um, have you read any of my articles? Yes, actually. I did, uh, did a little bit of uh, digging before... Um, before our chat it was, it was good stuff um kind of like poetic some of it yeah um so today's episode is going to be quite um political we're going to dive into quite a lot of um theory of communism um and yeah probably from the, the lifetime of marx through to the Second World War, and then at the end we will wind down with the uncontroversial, uh, <laughs> not be not spicy at all. Uh, Balkans, Balkans, uh, Balkans chat, Balkans identity, and um, Yugoslavia, which um, you're a big fan of Tito. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, we have quite a lot to uh, to crack on with. Um, hopefully, we can pin this to one hour. Your Twitter, you do a lot of it's like a lot of theory stuff, um, and like I guess uh, commentary on current affairs i think people aren't expecting as you've said elsewhere on podcasts um as it's been pointed out that you're very open-minded to talking about different things um to your credit but um people don't expect your cultural angle I guess we can do this now. I was thinking maybe doing this later. If we, I'm not doing much um, identity politics or anything on the podcast for quite some time because it's quite a rabbit hole, isn't it? But um, yeah, a lot of contemporary communists want to pick apart like all of you imagine society is a sandwich, which yeah. I've used as a 
I like sandwich metaphors on the podcast. It's always when I'm hungry. Um, people like to just dismantle the whole sandwich. That yeah. seems to be because like this the system. It's like you we're uh, watching the Matrix. The system as a whole is like this sort of devilish. Um, I mean, the, it's like infrastructure and superstructure, right? Is that out of there? Yeah, the 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 base and the superstructure. Yeah, it's like permeating values from the media. Yeah, and, yeah. Stuff. Um, and you do see some like absolutely disastrous um, content from the media and from corporations and things, but. Um, We've talked before about um, high culture ballet, specifically the Soviet Union um, made ballet for basically populist. They made it for the masses when it was yeah. appropriated from um, the Tsarist regime. So I don't know if you just want to. Yeah, mean, so what? there is like a, a serious, um, a legitimate criticism of culture. Uh, from the Marxist perspective, uh, just the term dialectical materialism, mm. which is the m- method of analysis that Marxists use, is that ideas, ideology, the uh, logic of society, the reason that society follows, permeates into all <clears throat> levels of culture. And to give this as an example, let's say in the Enlightenment era, the liberal ideology, because of the revolutionary nature of it in comparison to what came before, ended up permeating uh, all aspects of culture, all traditions, all everything. And uh, Disraeli, a conservative, he wrote a correct, almost Marxist analysis his polemic against liberalism where he said it doesn't stop it just continues and continues and it it will destroy or revolutionize every institution that there is now Disraeli saw this as a bad thing he wanted to have a new conservative logic to institutions but um so there is at some level a truth to it that to be able to enter a new productive phase, you need to revolutionize all aspects. Though there is a uh, propensity on the left to overdo it and to not think exactly what is, if once we enter a new productive phase, a new phase of of everything, a post-revolutionary phase, what will it look like? And it has to, because everything does take some of the past mm. and carry it forward into the future, imbue it with a new socialist logic. Um, <clears throat> so the transition in Russia from Tsarist culture is beautiful, ornate, grand symbols of aristocratic chauvinism, competition, uh, were taken into state control and things like orchestra, ballet were popularized. Now the worker state generated and it ended up that the bureaucracy at the time, the new ruling class, kind of 
use these cultural institutions, this architecture, this old Tsarist high culture and kind of appropriated it for themselves. But in theory, the USSR continued, democratized some parts of the Tsarist culture. Um, those that were non-excludable, so everyone can enjoy the ballet, for example, or the orchestra. They took those and democratized them. Not so much, say, the buildings or anything like that. Those are reserved for the bureaucracy. But I think it's really important to have a kind of line running through the revolution of institutions. The, the new logic, the socialist logic, can't. it, it has to be uh, tagged on something, applied on something. Mm. So it can't just be a complete kind of vacuum uh, revolution. It has to take some elements of the past. Um, it's difficult sometimes because Marx did write almost explicitly that all things have to be revolutionized and just reading Marx without understanding the young Hegelians. It's, it's uh, it ends up being something of a kind of dogma of destruction of everything. But if you read the young Hegelians who Marx did break with, but he was still trained in that tradition, it, the each revolutionary phase of society isn't just this whole new thing. It's not, you don't rebuild the world, you revolutionize it, that's the difference. Um, it's like you're building, so, yeah. you're building layers yeah. on top of layers. Yeah, you build layers, and then you, and then things that are antithetical to that layer are removed. So, say in the, as Marx put it, in a communist phase, private property is removed because it doesn't follow the revolutionary logic. Mm. But that doesn't mean that everything is is removed or destroyed. Capitalism will destroy itself in in its own with its own tools. But not not all of life will be destroyed. All of cultural, social life will be destroyed. Is are these quite Eurocentric assumptions that we're building on? Do you know what I mean? In the sense that we're took Hegel and like the culture and the Western canon that he came yeah. from, and then we're adding Marx on top of that. When Mark, when we're talking about the rest of the world, especially like. Um, at the time of Marx's writing through to probably the early Cold War, you would just say, like, oh, some places are, like, at the feudal stage or, yeah. or like the, the very early capital stage. It seems that um, I, I have a, a take when um, people talk about um, Japan in World War II and they say that Japan was a, like a fascist country by the nature that they were racists and the government were racists and they were allied to, you know, European fascist countries. But I wouldn't quite put it in those terms because Japanese philosophy, there wasn't a Plato, there wasn't, uh, yeah. you know, there wasn't like the Christian um, theology or like any of those, the Enlightenment they basically um, had Shinto and then sprinted in the 19th century through, they like skipped all that, all that Western canon to go straight up to 
scientific racism. So when we talk about culture in uh, and like building new societies, is that something that is would that work globally? You're you're right that Japan like Japan wasn't necessarily a fascist country. Fascism in general as a European is a product of the Enlightenment. The mm. wrong product, but it's still an of modernity. Of modernity. And it, it did take some of Christian theology or, or let's say the identity of Christianity. It took some of that. But it wasn't a <clears throat> it's primarily European. So I'd agree with you that Japan isn't um wasn't a fascist country though. I'd agree with you also that in my personal analysis, because I live in Europe, because I study or I look at the history of Europe more mm-hmm. and European Western philosophy, um, <clears throat> I, I am slightly Eurocentric in my analysis. Does that necessarily mean Marxism is, is Eurocentric? Mm. No. But in the analysis of feudalism, capitalism, communism, or at least in the in the historical materialism as Marx applied it, it was the the findings were Eurocentric. Now, the dialectical method, let's say, can still be applied broadly to other sorts of culture. This is like a scientific. It's a, it's it's yeah. I mean, it's a scientific method. I wouldn't quite call it scientific but it's it's that sort it's a methodology it's a it's an approach right so you can apply it broadly it's just when it has been applied and when i apply it and when marx applied it it was in very european context i don't think that necessarily detracts from 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 the critique uh, from the critique it just uh it just makes sense you know marx lived in all of europe in England and whatever he that was the data that he applied the dialectical method to it wasn't necessarily that um, the dialectical method only applies to European culture he did a lot of sofa surfing Karl Marx didn't he he did a lot of what sofa surfing yeah 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 um especially angles not many people know that Marx actually wrote uh, romantic literature. Yeah, and poetry. Yeah, to his wife um, before they were married, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you kind of see his romantic, gothic kind of writing style in his work, even in his uh, economic work in Das Kapital. You see that kind of nature of writing. Mm. still in like infused in his uh, philosophic economic analysis so yeah we're going to do um i said before we uh we hit record that some people try and do like in quotation marks the history of communism yeah with a, actually a focus not on Marxist theory but on uh, you know I'm sure you've heard this this is like the be all and end all of American critiques is like the communism has never worked or yeah 
whatever. It's like they're, they're looking at the specific personalities of countries who are usually by the nature of a communist regime in some sort of trouble before they they're already mm. rocky and yeah. like they're facing the whole of um, the Western alliance they sort of besieged and then they will say like oh this country failed and it's like well yeah they did fail but I think they had some bad odds didn't they yeah and um, on the USSR uh, Jerry Cohen I'm not sure if you know him, a philosopher, Marxist philosopher, analytic Marxist, they call him. Um, <clears throat> he wrote a kind of critique of the USSR and why he said, he said basically that the USSR failing was a good thing for Marxist theory because Marx's idea wasn't that a country will go from a semi-feudal back, backwater, the weakest economy in Europe, Farming. to the a communist society, he said that it would be a late development in capitalism once the forces of production, that is, the objects of productivity, things that make the economy more productive, once they come to a position where they are at maximum antagonism with the relations of production, with the bourgeois and proletariat, that's when the communist revolution would continue or, or, or start and, and launch us into a new productive phase. <clears throat> into socialism and then into communism as a not communist. So it's sure. like people use, and I was going to say this a bit later. Um, we have communism as almost like an interchangeable word for Marxism. But when yeah. Marx talked about communism, it was the final stage of the um, change in like relations, right? Yeah, so Marx, um, in his work on what communism was, he didn't really use the word socialism, communism. He just used them inter interchangeably. It was Lenin that kind of drew the distinction between socialism and uh, communism. Marx, when he wrote about it, he looked at the Paris Commune, which was revolutionary in all senses. Mm. And his he said basically the the thing that um, a low stage communist society should do is abolish private property straight away um, and kind of have a free free association as an anarchist term, but that sort of thing a, an association of people discussing uh, a, a kind of a new unalienated phase where you have control of your own life. Mm. <clears throat> so when he looked at um, the Paris Commune, he, he, he understood that they couldn't go into late stage or into high communism uh, immediately. They had to have a somewhat intermediary stage. But that was to be informed between uh, with the revolutionary masses. Mm. Uh, they would critique they would understand how to Is administer the economy bottom up basically sorry bottom up yeah like yeah spontaneous almost yeah 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 so it would be like uh, that it would be a sort of perfect democracy that people communicating uh cooperating and so on uh i think it's important in the history of marxism to look at 
not only the Paris Commune mm. and then the critiques that Marx had, because he did have critiques that the Paris Commune was actually not authoritarian enough to defend itself against the, the, the French. French um, yeah. So he, he, he looked at that and said, well, if they had a more kind of authoritarian system, they could have bat away the, the threat, the French threat that eventually killed the commune. So um, quick history uh, context for the good audience. Um, Bismarck and the Prussian state were trying to create a unified Germany. Yeah. Um, and that had been something that um, German national. If I say German nationalists, it's actually in a liberal conception. There's no yeah. like, there's no sort of egregious dodgy context. If yeah. somebody, if you met somebody in a pub in the 1840s and they said they were German nationalists, you'd be like, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, it wasn't too fishy um, because Germany didn't exist as a nation state. It was like you know, yeah. loads, loads of little. Um, early modern or medieval little some of them were city states um like frankfurt the frankfurt assembly um weimar was a country that sort of thing yeah and then they they beat the stuffing out of um napoleon the third who was related to napoleon um who um was trying to be like a populist um leader of um france and then that led to um the defeat in that war led to um the paris commune rising up and then the um yeah. they were basically it was just the paris commune wasn't it it was like basically singular i suppose paris has always been um unique amongst french geography for um political activism and then the french army sieged them and I suppose, would you consider them martyrs? They got their bum kicked, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, martyrs is probably a Bit slightly strong. religious term. But yeah, they were like the, let's say, the heroes of revolutionary action. Hmm. Um, Anarchists and communists both look up to them, right? Which is quite a yeah, quite a unique thing for to have quite a lot of the left all look to the same thing in agreement. Yeah. Um, the problem is anarchists and Marxists took different lessons from the Paris Commune. Mm. Um, ultimately, I agree with the Marxist um, critique of it because it failed, right? It was, it was good in some ways, but it clearly didn't have the capacity to defend itself. It spent too long being overly democratic against an actual serious threat with guns. Um, so... I agree with the Marxist conception of, of, of revolution in that sense, but it is it is an interesting. I mean, there's more overlap looking at how anarchists and Marxists hate each other. There's more overlap in the two uh, uh, positions. Positions, yeah. Then, then you would first think, seeing how they're always at each other's throats, like the. Um... Balkan countries. Yeah. Yeah. It's important in critiquing Marxism and the, the development of Marxism. It's important to look at the phases of 
what Marxism became uh, in each kind of <clears throat> of how basically each phase of Marxism came to be. Like we had Marxism, and then the Third International cemented the Leninist or the Bolshevik approach um, to Marxism, which is then what we ended up critiquing. Now I agree with some Leninist aspects; uh, they are well uh, covered, but it's not. It doesn't have to be. I don't consider it a kind of. They're not prophets, right? It's not like Jesus and then. Abraham and then Jesus it's not that's not how it should be approached I go back to Marx then I look at Leninism and critique it in that sense um, so it's I think it's important when you criticize when you want to make a serious criticism of Marxism you need to realize what phase of uh, popular Marxism you're critiquing mm. it's fluid it's like a fluid you take it yeah. um, and, and you I guess you apply it to whatever situation you're in yeah um and not too rigidly yeah yeah um so yeah when marx was writing it was a different he was a very different form of capitalism um Mm -hmm. marx talks about three classes most of my family don't actually come from those three classes. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, what what would that leave you with? I have no idea. <laughs> well, then it's just the countryside, bro. So, my, oh, okay. my all of my family on my dad's side. I mean, my dad is a like a botanist. He um he works in a posh garden place. Yeah, so I'm not sure if that's really um. That could very easily be like a 1600s occupation. Um, yeah. And then my mum has worked in like cafes and restaurants and stuff, but I suppose her parents were working in modern things, but the majority of my family were just, you would not apply those three classes to. Yeah. Because now you see um, people talk about like supposedly there's seven classes you know they have this sort of bureaucratic jargon of like oh yeah. this person is in the a b plus one yeah, yeah, yeah. um and then some people on the left have tried to popularize the idea of an underclass i kind of think like well the working class is an underclass to to, to break the working class into two and say that there's like a an even worse place to be. It's like, well, I don't think we should be romanticizing. Mm-hmm. It's not like I like working class culture. Um, I think it's cool, but it's not like fun. Does that, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think to say that there's like a like a more serious bit underneath it is sort of making being in the working class look silly. In my yeah. opinion. <clears throat> I mean, you're right, but uh, underclass, I mean, this overly bureaucratic ABCDE system is is not, I couldn't care less, yeah. uh, but the basic bourgeois proletariat 
um, divide, the underclass comes in as part of the proletariat because it has to, or at least let's say in the industrial world, the underclass would come in as part of the proletariat because it has no wealth on it has to sell labor power it has to sell its labor as commodity for to live so it's essentially just excess labor unemployed proletariat uh, the thing is proletarian refers to a very specific industrial victorian Fact. worker a factory worker um and the economy in the West, at least, in the US and UK and parts of Europe has changed. It's no longer an industrial economy. It's a, we use the word post-industrial economy. Um, and I think for Marxists in particular, it's important to take the analysis from where we are now rather than this idea of the of the industrial worker in the past. And there are clear distinctions there. <clears throat> I mean, in terms of what alienation is, I'm thinking now of writing something on uh, new alienation, what alienation is in the modern era, in, in the postmodern era even yeah. now. Um, but the fundamental difference is that alienation in the Marxist sense was the alienation of labor from the products of labor. So it was the subject, the worker, to the object, the product of labor, the machine or whatever. And that was fundamentally the man was estranged from nature in that sense, in the and, and capital served as the abstraction. The the mechanism for, for the abstraction of work and labor as commodity, right? In today's world, in a, in a post-industrial world, <clears throat> oh, I should add as well that if you take the world, the globe basically as um, as one unit, there is we're still an industrial, we still have to make things, we're not. Uh, we still have factories. Yeah, we still have factories. In Bengal they all, and Vietnam yeah, yeah, yeah. make garments and make um things that yeah. were like it's like parts of the victorian economy have, yeah. have been moved basically they've moved to yeah, yeah, yeah. so if you take the world as a as a total system then yes we're still in the in the industrial phase and we can apply marxist analysis to that but in the west uh we're in a service phase in a different nature of work Deliveroo, um, yeah. call centers, yeah, that sort of thing. In in that sense, because we're in a communication age of dealing with people now as our product, our product is our appeal to people, and that's on the consumer side, but it's also on the producer side. We're, we're in a new productive phase. Also, you know, when you talk to your to your managers, it's no longer you. No longer have a clear, as clear a role in the business in relation to the object that you're creating. Mm. You have it's subject to subject. Like if I was in a factory making an engine, for example, I know that my role is to work and to put pistons in the engine. And if I had a problem, I'd go to my union 
leader and that would be it i understand where i am in relation to the to to production and to business and to society at large right now it's a completely different and zizek and jameson quite correctly say it's a postmodern relation of production you're not you no longer have a clear position in the economy or in your business and it's a more insidious form of alienation because it if you're if okay taking the assumption that uh production commodity production is the abstraction of production right it that's the reason that alienation happens if now your alienation is subject to subject so person to person your the alienation is almost it ends up being intrinsic it's it's like a it's within you you have to change your personality to it's match the to, production of your commodity like it's harder to articulate the form of oppression because the lines are blurred yeah yeah exactly and it's that's the task of the left now is to make something like that clear like a new communist manifesto that speaks to that relationship mm-hmm. but it's a it's a real problem because you think right subject to subject interactions they aren't alienated because you're cooperating uh, but it's it's not quite that simple because you still have the idea in mind of an objective value to your product right you still have the idea of a customer that you you need to serve and then that goes towards that's customer facing but it's also permeates all parts of the business mm-hmm. that you're in so there's this like decentralized objective figure of the of the consumer of the person you're serving um so it's like it's a whole weird intersubjective thing uh, a product uh, so uh, how how far into your are you still like in the thinking stages of where you're going to go with writing this uh yeah i should i'm probably gonna start it today see if i can finish it by monday Mm -hmm. and then i'll yeah i'll see how it goes but it's a difficult thing to get my head around because because most of the workers um but, but most of the work around modern alienation is based on lacanian psychoanalytics mm-hmm. so, so i don't understand lacanian psychoanalytics right zizek uh jameson uh guided board mm-hmm. in the society of the spectacle they all use it even though they might not specifically refer to it they all use it at some level the idea of the other and so on that's but i'm when i try and write these things i try and make them simple for people that haven't read lacan lacan or or whatever it sounds like you are still but it sounds like you personally are still articulating it in your head as you go with it yeah yeah definitely it's yeah. yeah yeah you're right to say that um and I follow a few. There's a good um, 
the guy who I follow conflict journalism. Yeah. Uh, and there's a page called Popular Front, and so it's like got a mild like left leaning stance to it. And the guy who created that, um, Jake. He used to do stuff for like Vice, um, and he's been to like Rehava, and he's like done stuff with the Kurds, and he's done stuff with like different um, conflicts. And he he comes from a working background, and he's said that he finds it quite hard to. He like dipped into anarchist literature, and then finds actually some of what he's reading quite hard. It sort of seems a little bit like. like academic ego to just make to make your work as sort of like jargonsome and heavy as possible. Yeah. Um I think writing should be like just accessible to people. Yeah. Uh, you see a lot of the politics coverage regarding this um Hartley Paul and the um council elections in the UK on Twitter, people going really in depth into like personalities and yeah. different things and like people pulling up graphs and stuff and it's like I think people on the doorstep step just didn't like what was being offered um, yeah. I, a lot of politics and economics is sort of weirdly intuitive and is stuff that people can understand quite easily it's, then people then like deep it and it's like they're almost dead job to make it more complex yeah i mean there is a balance to be struck because sometimes you have to use specific terminology to talk about a specific thing right it's difficult for me to give a class analysis without using the word for zero for example even though it's it's not you know the most common word in the world but yeah there is a, a weird weird tendency especially in modern um academia philosophy economics to just make things as difficult as possible also people don't use um uh, examples or analogies enough in their work no and that that makes it just impossible for someone to understand how that relates to their life Mm -hmm. you know what's the point If, if if i'm not getting any benefit or insight from it what, what am I reading it for other than to swing dicks about with other academic inclined people yeah I I, I have a uh, I know swearing rule because it's meant to be family friendly but just to, oh. to have, just to have a crude analogy I would say it, it's basically academics intellectually masturbating isn't it yeah yeah they're sort of just like look I <laughs> look I have my master's yeah, I have my PhD in um, Hegel. Um, so yeah, just to basically, we've done some alienation. Basically, just to wrap up some Marxist stuff, and then we'll be thinking about going on to. Um, oh, actually, I wanted to talk to you about um, the Spanish Civil War as well, because that's quite fun um, to talk about. Um, it's just very interesting that like he's 
poor Marx and Engels are bumping along the road. Um, they used to get, you know, they used to get drunk and they would like run around smashing the light, the night lamps in London. Yeah. Uh, sounds quite fun, actually. Um, being chased by like the the peelers, the Victorian police with their like sticks. <laughs> Come back here, Karl Marx. Yeah, um, yeah. If you read some of their correspondence, uh, some of the letters they sent to each other, they are, it's just hilarious. It's good sometimes because with Marx, he can write in this grandiose way. It's difficult to realize that there's a man under the work. Mm. So it's nice sometimes to go back and read some of his letters to Engels and just see, you know, that there was a personality attached. Um, I, I, we could say that for anyone, really, couldn't we? Yeah, it's true. Um, Marx, so, I mean, they lived through, it was, we went on a tangent after talking about classes and uh, early capitalism. They were writing at the time of like the American Civil War, yeah, Franco-Prussian War. This is like very that's like classic imperialism as well. The scramble for Africa, um, it's like di- and direct imperialism. I know in North America, a lot of people and a lot of Hispanic writers talk about like indirect imperialism, and um, I think it was the United Fruit Company in the nineteen fifties that had this like it was basically like a mega corporation of the US that had you know like tens of thousands of um, fruit pickers and people on like banana plantations and coffee plantations in Central America and Cuba and places it's just like an outfit it's almost like how the um, East India Company was the Mughal Empire was defeated by a corporation which is quite a bizarre thing to think about yeah the the crown just had a a private corporation with a militia. It's quite Ancapistan, really, isn't it? That they had this yeah, like yeah, yeah. this business. It's like Lord Sugar sending out an army or something. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't just that, yes, they were living through a period of imperialism of war, but they were also living through economic crisis after economic crisis, mm. and that informed. Marx's writing more than um, imperialism awarded, though okay. they did play a role. Uh, Marx had slightly weird views on imperialism in the sense of he still believed in uh, Ricardian uh, comparative advantage mm-hmm. in the sense of the development of uh, economies of, of less of less developed economies in a globalised economic system. He still believed that <clears throat> In that sense, uh, international trade would be useful for those. He also said something that uh, it was it's more nuanced than people make it out to be, but he said basically that British imperialism in India would be good for the would be good for capitalism mm. for developing India. And so by extension good for communism or revolutionary global action. Am I right in saying that we can in the same way that Toast, this is another food analogy, Franklin. This is me yeah. being hungry. 
In the, <laughs> in the same way that toast is bread, but bread isn't automatically toast, can we say that Marx was a capitalist in the sense that he thought that we should we shouldn't rush it it will just rush itself and it will blow itself up we should have to go through capitalism or we will go he's not saying like and capitalism itself it's not um it works i mean it works for its own people think capitalism was broken it's like well capitalism was never meant to end homelessness it was just meant to do it's what it says on the tin which is to get people who want to step on other people really rich. Yeah. And so Marx is just like, well, this will happen. So in his, in his uh, theory work, you could probably say that Marx wasn't necessarily against capitalism. He saw it as a crucial transitional step to communism and that he, he praises capitalism, even in the manifesto, he praises capitalism profusely for its um, capacity to, to, to bring people out of feudal, feudal cultural and economic structures to it's it's more freedom than they had before and it's more productive than the phase they had before but it comes with its issues and these issues will be resolved with some kind of revolutionary action um that's marx in theory and then you get the other side of marx which was political uh radical writer trying mm. to get the masses to rise and in that sense he's not as he he, in the manifesto if you read the last chapter it's it's a call to arms even though he knew in his theory that not all countries were developed sufficiently to go to communism he still wanted to plant the radical seed in so marx as a as a not sure what to call it, but someone who tries to galvanize the masses was not a capitalist. He wanted the immediate overthrow. Of as capitalism. a speaker or as a... as a as a writer in some of his lectures, he uh, he's quite militant in his rhetoric. Mm. Uh, but as a theoretician, I wouldn't be against saying that he's he's not super anti-capitalism. He sees it as a crucial step. But there's a contradict. There's a, a kind of irony there, a cynicism of, oh. of like Marx, the theoretician, and Marx, the political writer, the pamphlet writer, the activist. So, um, as I'm sure you know, first half of the 19th century, it's basically the UK and Belgium were industrialized, and then you had France, USA. Germany and then like most of the other European powers and South America try and catch up after that around 1900 onwards um Marx dies Engels dies you then have um communist parties I think Zizek said this in have you read um violence i have it actually i've been reading it i have it somewhere possibly on my bedroom floor which is a mess um 
I bought it when I was um, 15, and I did not yeah. understand it at all. It went over my head. Yeah. Um, my psych- my um, psychology class from secondary school, we they clearly like had some, you know, like trip to London uh, money. So we went to the Freud Museum, and in the Freud Museum, which was he had like weird sort of like like phallic art and like weird stuff going mm. on, and like, it was very weird vibes. Um, but they had a little like bookshop, and I I was interested in like reading about history and uh, politics, but I hadn't read any like philosophy at all. You know, in my like state schools they don't really do like philosophy. Um, and I, uh, it was like a guy throwing a bottle or something. And I was like, oh, cool. you know, I'm like in year 10. I'm like, oh, sick. It's about like throwing stuff at po- the police. Or... And I tried reading through it and I was like, what? Um, he writes something and I haven't been able to find it this morning. Um, about how the, the decision to make explicit communist parties and we kind of see this today with um is it sandy toxvig from uh you know there's like general knowledge yeah from qi yeah (laughs) she she is in or was quite active in the feminist party right yeah when she was younger yeah but similar to communism if you think of just feminism as an aim and a attitude and a philosophy to then squeeze that into a party yes seems a little bit too narrow it's like a movement Um, with communism it's like to make communist parties if you just want that to be your revolutionary attitude I understand there's like organisational benefits to having a traditional party politic structure um but you saw that that really came under pressure about 10 years later when the first world war kicks off because there's like this big crisis on the left right where like the right wing are like yeah let's go we're gonna beat the stuffing out of france or germany or russia and then the left is like atomizing and panicking because some of them are um but I mean uh somebody who then wasn't exactly a socialist after the first world war Mussolini famously Mussolini the socialist writer circa 1914 was uh pro-war yeah he was anti-war and then he was pro-war because they're like they think that a victory in a war would benefit the country which would benefit the working class and I guess also just on a practical level it's very bad optics uh you know you saw this with the the tabloid media only about five ten years ago when they had that horrible headline about the um Ralph Miliband um Ed Miliband's father where they said he was like the Marxist who he's an awful headline Franklin wasn't it It was like the Marxist who hated Britain because he was was critical of the UK um and then you had the people, I think Lenin also, did Lenin say that it would accelerate? Um, this gets me, that's a nice one, because we were going to talk about accelerationism, possibly. Um, 
that yeah. the conflict would be bad and that would be a good thing for um for speeding up a revolution. You've got all kinds of different takes, right, on what to do with the First World War. Yeah, so the main split uh, in the First World War was between the uh, anti-war and pro-war camps. Lenin was, by the uh, time of the First World War, pretty much anti-war. He saw it as an imperialist war, a capitalist war, that the working class are being sent to die, basically, for these fat men in panel rooms. Yeah. Um, so Lenin was anti-war. The German factions of, of the working class party, they were anti-war. Britain was... Um, the revolutionary sex of Britain um, is a guy called Henry Hindman. Mm-hmm. He and he was pro-war, and he ended up being just a complete reactionary, a fascist before fascism. Um, and so, the split started with the pro-war anti-war movement. Most of the guys that were most of the revolutionary uh, parties that were pro-war ended up being headed by genuine reactionaries and, and people that were ended up overly nationalistic. And like thuggish. Forgot they forgot their their theoretical allegiances to the international proletariat. Mm. Lenin's best, undeniably his best stance was that he was against the the, the first world war, and he, he that was what won the Bolshevik Party the October Revolution. That was the Bolshevik Party at the start of the war uh, was about. 2,000 members at the in the February Revolution was about 20,000 members. By the end of the the Civil War, it was 1.3 million. So people they had peace, peace, land, bread, right? Peace, land, bread. Uh, so people were responding positively. I know that there's a kind of idea that that Lenin took the Kerensky, the provisional government, and just pushed it and took over without popular assent. But there was a serious anti-war movement or an anti-war feeling that Lenin was speaking to then. And, and so the Bolshevik Party won with their anti-war stance. The British Marxist tradition lost. Um, and Henry Hindman ended up being a Marxist in name only. He ended up being a rampant anti-Semite. Even Eleanor Marx, uh, Karl Marx's daughter who works with uh, Henry Hindman just ended up leaving the party and disavowing him because he was just insane at that point. Mm. But uh, yeah, there was a split. On the First World War, if more um, revolutionary parties took the anti-war stance, we would have seen more revolutions, I think, uh, because nobody wanted war, the soldiers least of all. Um, the famous the Christmas... Uh... The Christmas Day um, football. Yeah, yeah. So it was like it was a period of instability. The death of the Age of Empire, um, and it was like it was a perfect breeding ground for for revolution. Now the problem with that analysis is if there wasn't a revolution in the Kaiser's Germany, mm. it was almost. There was, yeah. But if there wasn't then 
it means that all the main opposition, French, German, uh, French, English, and so on, wouldn't have been there because they they would have all had their own proletarian revolutions, anti-war revolutions. So would the Kaiser have won in that regard if if the whole Socialist Party was anti-war? And that's the question that I always have, even though I am, I, I agree with the Lenin side of, of the of the of the of how works parties approached World War One. There is a question of what would have been the ultimate history if they did. Because um the Kaiser actually gave Lenin a train to go from Switzerland to through the central powered territory through to Russia to undermine yeah. the Tsar. Yeah, there's a um it's completely overblown. It was overblown by the Kerensky government, the relation between the Bolshevik Party and the German regime or the, the Kaiser's regime. But there there was a <clears throat> support for for not just Lenin, but the Kerensky government, every anti-Sarist opposition that there was mm. basically was supported by the Germans for that reason. And that's why pragmatic support, right? It was yeah, it was pragmatic support. And then the support stopped. Uh, after February, I mean, sorry, the support stopped after October. They didn't want a communist um, state, a worker state, um, a Marxist state. So the support stopped then. But um, yeah, is what was that? Yeah, that's why um, when the October Revolution came, the Kaiser's forces didn't stop. They pushed into Russia, taking uh, advantage of the instability. Luckily, this was the end of the war. There was fatigue. There was, you know, numbers were do- were dwindling, and they ended up. The Russians ended up pushing them back and 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 organizing a peace treaty that Trotsky went to and sort of fucked up. No, no it was war, pretty no controversial, peace. wasn't it? Was that Brest-Litovsk? Yeah. Sorry, the the treaty, the place, the Brest of yeah, yeah, the yeah, Brest of controversial, wasn't it? Yeah, so. It was the Bolshevik party at the time was kind of weirdly split on the question of war. The younger Bolsheviks, uh, Bukharin was one, uh, and Radek, or uh, they were very much pro-war because they thought it would foment revolutions in the other uh, in the other countries uh, currently engaged in war. And they saw <clears throat> revolution in Hungary and Germany, and that would have consolidated the worker state at the time with other worker states around them. Uh, Lenin took the very much, let's leave the war peace basically under under most conditions. Uh, Trotsky took the stupid, uh, completely spat in the face of all diplomacy with the no war, no peace. Um, and that kind of messed up. So Lenin staked his leadership of the party he said basically if we don't leave the war i'll resign Hmm. um so yeah it was an interesting that particularly was an interesting period in the bolshevik party that's why as well uh, it was weird for me learning that because it when you grow up learning about the russian revolution and the bolshevik party you think it's like a lenin was like a monarch figure and and Hmm. it was It was literally an autocratic 
party structure, one person makes all the decisions, but actually learning about it was far more democratic uh, in quotation marks. It was far, there was far more debate and, and polemics and discussions to be had about the future of the party and of the revolution, of the direction of Russia. Later on, he had to do, Lenin had to do the ban on factions, right? Because there was too much maneuvering and um, yeah. sneaky intrigue stuff going on between the people. Yeah. They ended up forming basically voters' blocks. Uh, the main Bolshevik revolutionaries ended up forming like blocks where they'd vote with each other mm. and that kind of hamstrung everything. Uh, but look, I mean, they at least, you know, they disagreed with each other on a lot. They were really quite, um, they insulted each other a lot in their work. Uh, but at the end of the day, they came, they reconciled, they read each other's points of view, and they decided on a part on a, on a forward movement from there on a policy mm. direction um yeah the hungarians had a revolution didn't they right at the end as austria hungary is collapsing and uh i might butcher his name it's like bella kun right i'm not too well versed on the hungarian quite a lot of people got purged and like shot and stuff and then the um they were popular for a while with the because obviously like all the armies are demobilizing but they're also like needed to fight in each other's like political turf wars that are going on in central europe and eastern yeah. europe so they're like officially they don't have to fight but also they're like fighting for different causes um because hungary was going to be dismantled by you know like just the messy way that states work which aren't proper nation states Austria-Hungary was like all the um, cultures and ethnic groups were overlapping and when they tried to come up with borders they weren't proper borders um, Hungary stood to get quite small um, which is what it is today it's quite small to where it was um, in the early modern period um <laughs> So it doubled up as like the Hungarian communists were going to expand their state and their appeal to Hungarian nationalists was like, it's a communist state, but it's a Hungarian communist state. So we'll get more Hungary. Um, yeah. And that worked for a bit, but um, they basically, they were shooting too many Hungarians and they got their bums kicked by um, the Romanians. Yeah, there's a there was a slight problem. That's the this is the biggest criticism that I have of, of the revolutionary, uh, the early nineteenth, uh, the early twentieth century revolutions. They had a militaristic feel, a culture to them. Mm. Like uh, it was like a, they'd been so imbued with the war that. Things like the Red Terror or the uh, how Trotsky dealt with the Kronstadt uprising, it was kind of at that point expected. They had the military psyche basically mm -hmm. after spending five 
in the case of the Russian Revolution, almost um, seven years at war. Mm -hmm. Because they were the first world war and the civil war. So that was my biggest criticism that they somewhere lost the point of Marxism, which was to kind of lift people out of their slog because of this militaristic psyche that they had. But yeah, Trotsky was a was an exceptional military leader mm -hmm. and an exceptional Marxist. But sometimes you feel his theoretical work on what the point of Marxism is and what the new culture, the proletarian culture should be, and on his wonderful work on literature is sometimes disconnected from Trotsky, the military leader, the destroyer of the Contra uprising, and the same with Lenin in terms of the Red Terror. That um, there's that expression, right? If you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Um, but we should also like appreciate that when we say it's not, it's a bit like the English Civil War actually involved quite a lot of um, like the Scottish and Irish theatres. When we say yeah. Russian Civil War, there's Poles, there's Bolts, Finns. Yeah, Finns. Um, I think there was actually an uprising of Muslims in Central Asia. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Um, yeah, and oh, that's why got the anarchists in uh, the Ukraine. Yeah, and and that's why part of me says that, like, okay, they had a militaristic psyche, but at the same time, would they have been able to withstand everything that was happening? Because it wasn't just civil war. There were the whites, which were basically nearly fascists. Um, yeah, actually. They were reactionaries, um, and they were funded by all of the Western powers, all yeah. of the massive economies. So there is part of me that says if they didn't come down hard on the potential counter-revolution or mm. the potential undermining of, of the USSR, would it even have been able to function? Like, A bit like the even... Paris Commune. Yeah. The, the criticism... I have though is it was if you read how the peasants um the how the agricultural revolt happened and how they how the Bolshevik party the whites how the whole kind of every side of the civil war how they dealt with the agricultural sector and how they dealt with the peasants that was the criticism that I can't because it was chaotic it was evil at some points like they uh, just took food didn't they they took food and then they killed anyone who opposed them. And this was both sides. It wasn't just the red, it was yeah. the white as well. But um, it was, I mean, it, if I was a farmer uh, then, I would have been completely like, I, I understand why the farmers ended up being so opposed to every single party. They were called, was it, are you talking about the green armies? There were people who, you know about this? They the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. They did try and, uh, uh, across the Russian Empire, the ex-Russian Empire, they did try and form militias to defend themselves. But, you know, you had the Red Army that was comprised of old Tsarists and, and uh, Kerensky, uh, the actual official army that were trained in that, and the White Army that were trained and regimented. So you had two regimented 
highly uh, professional. armed professional armies coming up against your little, you know, village. Village, yeah, yeah. So it was. It, it reminds me. Um, I don't know, like, you know, these visions of like the marauding crusaders coming up against these small villages and just steamrolling the whole thing. That's what it reminds me of, but with more guns and more deadly. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's very treacherous how one of the themes I was hoping we could express in the episode, we're probably erring towards um, the end of the episode if we can squeeze in the Balkans at the end. Um, mm-hmm. is the, the theory of the Marxists sort of crashing into reality and then these different examples of like the governments who were just in like cursed positions and um, obviously um, the Bolsheviks trying to, uh, well, more Stalin than then in trying to industrialize from a rural base and just skipping like the sort of merchant commercial stage. Yeah. Um, all this sort of crazy stuff going on in the world. Real politic, or that's like you know international relations, and um, there was a war scare in I think it was nineteen twenty eight. It's quite hard to find stuff on that war scare um, on Google. Um, I I've got here. I'm reading um, Anthony Beaver's The Battle for Spain. Yeah, you read that? No, I haven't read much. Like outside of. A few analyses of the. Uh, oh, is it backwards? Yeah. You're reading it. No, back. no, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I got it. He's throwing a grenade at a fascist, I think. Yeah, I need to read more on the on the Spanish uh, civil war, and because I know two people that that I like or big figures throughout history were involved. Ernest Hemingway mm. was involved in the Spanish civil war. And George Orwell, who mm-hmm. wrote, who wrote um, Hamas Catalonia. Mm-hmm. So I need to read Hemingway's essays on, on the Spanish Civil War and Orwell's to just see how it, like, how it was on the ground from a writer's mind. I can, um, <laughs> I can talk about Spain. I know it's like I have guests on, but I can talk about Spain for like two minutes if you want. Oh, yeah, please. Pretty cool. It's pretty cool shit. So... Spain lost most of their empire after the Napoleonic Wars. So, like, most of the European countries during the 19th century have, like, fat empires. And then mm-hmm. Spain has, uh, like, Cuba, Guam, the Philippines. It's not, like, super chunky. Um, and then in 1898, the USA goes to war with Spain and they lose Cuba, Guam, the Philippines. Um, this is where you get um, the Cuban, the weird cu- Cuban relationship with the USA for Castro, which is like lots of bankers and casinos and sort of because it's like a weird limbo country where it's technically it's like de jure independent, but it's not really because they have to. Yeah. yeah, it's basically a colony, and lots of dodgy people are going there and building um, casinos in Havana and stuff. And then it's only t- about 10 years after that, 
16 years after that that you have World War One, so they're still basically crippled. Um, and then 1931, the King of Spain resigns, abdicates, because mm-hmm. he's pretty unpopular, and it's already like fever pitch revolutionary vibes. Um, and also note that um, even amongst like the, the nationalists, the right wing people, when Franco wins the Spanish Civil War, they don't bring back the monarchy. The monarchy only comes back when Franco dies. So like some of the nationalists were monarchists, but some of them were just like they you know they just like having big farms and the Catholic Church. They're not um, they're like modern modernist writers um yeah. and in 1936 at the start of 1936 there are elections um and the, there's a popular front you know stalin was big on having communist parties work with other leftist parties they win the elections and you start getting stuff happen on the side like um people getting assassinated and stuff proper like accelerationist you know there's like the drift to war um and most of the spanish army are pretty obviously um like they don't they don't care about the republic they're not too big on the the spanish government they do a coup in july the coup doesn't take over in Madrid or Barcelona, although they thought it would do. And then the Spanish government finds itself in a place where, even though they're like mostly, they're mostly liberals or like left liberals, you know, just like Keir Starmer, Spanish yeah. Keir Starmer, <laughs> they find themselves in this weird place where they're they're weirdly being backed by like communist men. These men are like, you know, give us guns and we will, because most of the army is no longer fighting, is no longer loyal to the government. So these men are like, give us guns and we will beat the crap out of um, fascism. And that's an awkward relationship throughout the civil war because um, basically the Spanish state doesn't have a lot of authority and like has to concede lots of ground to whoever is more organized and that tends to be the stalinists um because the soviet union gives them aid um and then the international a lot of people in the international brigades like orwell notice that the stalinists are able to like move their weight around more because they're contributing the most so it's like they have the most influence to um but there was like fighting in um, Barcelona. It's called like the civil war within the civil war. You know, like this leftist infighting sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's very messy, but you have some cool um, like case studies of um, big parts of Catalonia, the countryside were run by anarchists. Um, It's very interesting. There's also a good thing. I can send you a link on Twitter. You know, Thames link. It's like the precursor to ITV. Yeah, um, they did a series on the Spanish Civil War. It's like an eight-parter, so eight hours, mm-hmm. and they talk about um, they talk about the the factions and stuff. There's a bit where um, 
they basically talk about um sex work like i don't i have a lot of books on my um shelves about like military history you know like classic old school history but this is a good social history thing into um i think i'm right in saying i'll have to go back and double check this barcelona was basically a feminist city they'd gone from being like very traditionally catholic to you know being exposed to like lots of revolutionary ideas people had you know like quote unquote war marriages so it's kind of almost like pagan in the sense that you've taken the christian element out and that they're just like in a revolutionary heterosexual relationship yeah um And some of the feminist groups had decided to close down the brothels in Barcelona because they thought it was exploitative sex work um, without telling like the predominantly men on the sitting on the different councils. And those men were like, if soldiers have been fighting Franco for four weeks and they come back and they're horny, what are they going to do? And somebody said, somebody said to them, they were like, well, they should find girlfriends then. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. I'll have to send that to you. Um, that's like a hidden gem. That's not really, um, that hasn't made its name like, do you know the World War series about World War II? Mm-hmm. That hasn't really, yeah. with a catchy theme music, that hasn't made its name like that has. Um it's been very good to talk to you, Franklin. Hopefully, we can. Do you want to squeeze in two or three? Yeah. To talk about um, Yugoslavia. Not many people will know that Yugoslavia was originally a reactionary project of the Serbian monarchy to sort of mm-hmm. lots of people, like when Austria and the Ottomans blow up, lots of other Balkan theorists and like Balkan academics are like yeah sure we'll have a big Slavic Balkan country and that is just ruled by kind of like an absolute monarchy right Mm -hmm. Um, until World War 2 and it's only during World War 2 that Tito's partisans start to they held down something crazy like 20 um, fascist divisions right yeah, um, the shift from monarchy to, to partisan communism was fundamentally that Tito was a better leader, war leader, and the partisans were just more effective. Mm. So they ended up, like, you, like uh, you just talked about, the Stalinists were the more organised, the more uh, efficient fighting force in Catalonia, so they had more power. It's the same thing that Tito's partisans were the more efficient more effective mm-hmm. fighting for so um so yeah so you ended up in that war phase the monarchy which uh, the tito's partisans were kind of allied to just in defeating the fascist threat and the german threat um they ended up just ceding power in that war relation and mm-hmm. by the end of it Tito's partisans were so good at 
fighting that they ended up reclaiming part of um, Italy, the northern part of Yugoslavia. They ended up pushing the Italians back there and just consolidating power. That, that was quite spicy as well, right? Because the Italian Communist Party, is that Trieste? I don't know how to pronounce it. Trieste? It's like east of um, Venice. Yeah, yeah. The Italian Communist Party claimed that. They said this is part of Italy. Yeah. And the the Comintern, the sort of like Soviet bloc, had an awkward time juggling that. Um, yeah. Even before Tito had split with um, Stalin. Yeah. I mean, the Comintern wouldn't have been much help anyway, because as soon as it was founded, it was mismanaged. Well, they were basically yeah. whipped by Stalin, weren't they? Yeah, in the Stalin era, yeah. And, but literally just even at the start when all the communist parties were coming together in, in, the, in the Communist International, um, it just was really quite poorly managed. Um, also, you have to consider that the Comintern was dominated by Russian revolutionaries that had won their war. Uh, so it was kind of, it wasn't the bet, it had potential. It was excellent as an idea, it just didn't function right. Basically, Tito won, even against the Italians, it was it, it would never have been settled in the common term anyway. It was it had to be settled in war. Mm. And that's where Tito excelled. And, that, and he was, I mean, they still called him the marshal even after you know, after the war. Mm. Throughout his, his the other way that you have in World War Two is the Chetniks. Chetniks are kind of weird because they're like right-wing, mostly Serbian mm-hmm. people who are some Some of them are like loyalists to the old monarchy of Yugoslavia. But whereas that monarchist government were in exile in London and supported the war effort, they... I think the Chetniks basically found themselves fighting Tito so much... Mm-hmm. They like really bitterly hated communism that they basically yeah. ended up cutting deals with they no longer were a resistance group mm-hmm. who just had other resistance enemies. They basically ended yeah. up as like a fascist um faction. Yeah. It was a it was just a weird uh situation because the monarchists were unpopular and losing. Mm. In, in war sphere the partisans were gaining in popularity but still they had to fight they were a grassroots uh, movement they had a professional army and so on but they weren't like a, they didn't have a, it wasn't like the, like a, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here but anyway it was a three man it was a th- it was basically three way ideology yeah oh. Yeah, so the Ustaza, which was the Croatian fascists, the Chetniks and so on, these lots of fascist groups and the Pastors were fighting. The monarchists would just... Is that the Croat group? The Croat group, yeah. They, they were, were horrible. All... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a picture, I don't know if you've seen it, of a Croatian partisan being hung. Mm. Before he was hung, he puts his hands up, like, the, the in, in the kind of... The, his fists up, basically. It was like... And there's a statue of him now, I think, in... Uh, in Croatia or Serbia, of him literally holding his hands up as a, he was the partisan, Yugoslavian partisan resistance to fascism. 
Uh, but it was a, it's a fascinating uh, part of history that I'm not as well read about as I should uh, be. There's a, yeah, it's just a, a really interesting three-way uh, war. I don't know if you've, uh, have you played Modern Warfare 3, the campaign? Oh, Call of Duty? Call of Duty, yeah. Yeah. Have you played it? Yeah, you know the you know there's a mission where the Russian forces and the US forces are fighting each other, and then there's the like the guy you're playing as, which is like Yuri or someone, and they're for, they're fighting, and all three of them are fighting each other, right? Mm. And Nikolai calls Captain Price. I don't know if you remember it. He says the enemy of my of enemy, is enemy. My friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was fundamentally like that. They had no permanent friends, no permanent enemies. They just had their permanent ideological interests. And in that formation, the partisans came out on top. Pretty messy stuff, really, wasn't it? Um, I think you first followed me because I retweeted something about Twitter and um, like worker organized factories, industries. Yeah. From Tito, Titoism. Yeah, yeah. Um, the economics of, of Tito's uh, regime or his period as leader are interesting as well. They didn't work, uh, partly because they were kind of overly bureaucratic. But in theory, um, it was a they really consistent market socialist. What was that? You haven't said based once in the based <laughs> quote. That's quite disappointing, Franklin. Uh, yeah, I mean, market, uh, the idea of worker self-management in Tito's um, Yugoslavia was good. It just, there was too much party. The party was just too involved. Sluggish, like. It was just, they had party officials basically um, looking over workers' boards and sometimes the party officials and the workers would clash on decisions. And it was, that's why fundamentally it, it didn't function as it should have functioned. Mm. Uh, but it was interesting. What does it say about Tito as a personality? I think the, the basically the Western narrative on Yugoslavia is that they were always going to... It's like this weirdly deterministic narrative that's reading it like from the 90s backwards, that it was always mm -hmm. going to implode, but Tito was very good at, at not dividing people. Yeah. Do you think if they had if in like some sort of um, hypothetical scenario, there was like another Tito-like figure to succeed Tito, you could have just mm. had another 50 years of probably um, more liberal, more like pro-EU Yugoslavia without the Soviet Union? Mm. I mean, it's worth not understating Tito's effect, like even in the Ottoman era, there were civil wars basically between the ethnic factions from mm. the time there was real bad blood there and uh, like a cultural um, ancestry, let's say, or cultural antibody that functioned to cement or entrench and um, Bosnia and stuff. Yeah, yeah. even um, yeah, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, they all had like their own infighting, uh, ethnic uh, infighting. Tito, I 
can't see that they would have replaced Tito, although part of me kind of wishes that they had a figure like that. But Tito was very much pro the Yugoslavia project. He was an excellent leader in that sphere in the sense of he kind of brought everyone into the project rather than dictating, rather than it wasn't an empire. He tried to... It wasn't like subtly Serbian or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He tried to give uh, each ethnic group enough power, but to keep them in the Yugoslavian model or the Yugoslavian culture. Uh, If you uh, listen to some of the speeches that Tito, or read some of the speeches that Tito gives, or the music that came from the Yugoslavian choir, Red Choir, uh, it's always about the sons of Yugoslavia, the sons of whatever, this this kind of collective, rather than, you know, the Serbian, uh, Bosnian, Croatian, whatever. Um, Would nationalism, would, you know, Yugoslavia have been able to curb nationalism? Potentially. There would never have been another Tito figure, but it wouldn't have blown up in the same way that it did, because after Tito's death, there was a really weird convoluted system of they would keep replacing the leader from someone put forward by each ethnic faction. So you had, say, for one period, you'd have Serbian domination of Yugoslavia. Then the next period, you'd have Croatian domination. And um, that kind of entrenched this hatred because each leader then, subsequent leader after Tito, was looking after his own interests. And also because the party, the the sections of the ethnic groups, basically, of, of the party uh, elected that person, he was always going to be tied to the interests of the ethnic group rather than the interests of Yugoslavia in a kind of general overview mm-hmm. sense. So the system that they had afterwards was part of the reason that Yugoslavia exploded in the way it did in the, in the Yugoslavian wars, okay. the Bos, uh, Bosnian genocide and Kosovo. But I can't imagine it lasting, having lasted either way. Tito was so entrenched in that, in the Yugoslavian project from his, even from his work as part of the partisans uh, in, in the war, in the, in the Second World War, all the way through his, his uh, rhetoric, uh, what he saw, his vision for Yugoslavia was always, it wouldn't have been replaced. And his connection to the people. I mean, Tito died um, in on the 5th of May in 81, I think. And um, people genuinely cried. And uh, because it was the anniversary of his death a few days ago, I got, yeah. to see, I got to see some footage. People were genuinely upset at Tito's death. They were genuinely grieving. He was the father of the nation. There wouldn't have been another person to replace that spiritual connection with the people. I, um, obviously he was very big in the non-aligned movement. Mm-hmm. There's lots of countries that, um, a lot of people forget that, like, when we talk about the third world, it's now like a weird, like, sort of crappy euphemism for, I think the mainstream media want to just say, like, Africa without saying Africa. Yeah. But when they came up with the concept of the third world, it specifically meant Cold War countries who were neither in the Soviet bloc or the Western bloc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Egypt, Yugoslavia. Indonesia. Indonesia, yeah. 
there's a they went they when they came up with the like the non-aligned pact uh there's a there's some cool pictures uh, and, and videos of tito the egypt guy that i forgot his name so that's or nasa or nasa yeah um yeah and just just the the main leaders of the non-aligned pact basically you know with all the pomp and circumstance of like a an alliance between two monarchies or something like that and it is just fascinating footage of that period i also saw some cool stuff um i think it's probably about and you know like i'll never be able to find this now because this was like from 18 months ago on twitter but um there were very big protests in belgrade uh when um oh god what's his name patrice I don't want to fuck up his name. The guy, he was like the first president of the Congo. Yeah. He was um, assassinated. Um, the CIA and the Belgians got together to um, to screw him over because like there's some really good um, mining territory in the Congo. Mm-hmm. Um, and also he was, you know, coming out with um, stuff about decolonization and like left-wing um yeah african nationalism and stuff uh and in yugoslavia they had some very cool um anti um imperialist protests for that um so yeah pretty based rip rip our guy tito yeah um chad of (laughs) The episode unwinds at the end as I just uh, start coming up with internet euphemisms. Chad of the um, non-aligned movement. Yeah. Um, it's been very good to talk to you, Franklin. We've knocked out alienation, um, some dialectics, uh, mm. Marx and Engels getting drunk and running around London. World War One. I. I liked the World War One chat. That was quite good. Um, yeah. You're going to go off and do some writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been, it was very, I don't think the audience can appreciate how hard it was to um, pin you down. You're a very busy yeah. man. In two weeks in the making. <laughs> yeah. At one point I gave up and I was just like, no, this is, this, this won't happen. And then, um, and then we made it happen. So um, unfortunately we couldn't have it for, we did talk about um, pretending it, we were filming it on um, May Day. Yeah, that would have been sick. Yeah. Uh, you, you might go off to France at some point to join their May Day protest. Yeah. They they turn out to um, talk to the police, don't they? On civil <laughs> discussion. Yeah, hang out with the um, feds. It's been very good to talk to you, my friend. Um, yeah. Hopefully, you. Are very productive with your um reading and writing thank you yeah it was nice it was good we'll come on again at some point yeah later in the year <laughs>